Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let's read from God's Word together this morning our sermon text. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Eric is fond of quoting from the founding father Alexander Hamilton, or at least the hit Broadway musical, Hamilton. So I thought I'd take, take it one step further and quote from the preeminent founding father, the founding father who didn't think we needed a king. He was right. He won on that. Founding father who didn't think we needed a central bank. He lost that one. But the founding father who crafted most of the Constitution as we know it today, a political theorizer, a writer, and in fact, president of the United States, par excellence, James Madison. As James Madison was writing and trying to convince people that, you know, the United States Constitution was the way to go, it was a fantastic system of government, as he was writing, he wrote in Federalist Paper 51, this often, or this famous quote, where he said that if men were angels there would be no need of government. James Madison, as he was crafting a system of government, the system of government that we know today in, in the United States, while he was not a believer himself, he understood this foundational truth from Scripture, and it's that men are sinners. Human beings are fallen and human beings are broken. 
And it's because of that fact that we need a government. We need something to constrain us. If men were angels, if men were good, if they weren't fallen, if they weren't broken, then we would not need something to say, you know, don't lie on your taxes. Don't commit federal crimes or whatnot. But because we are fallen, we do need that. Now, we don't need much reminding that we're not angels, but that we are fallen. Some of my earliest memories are things like, I remember my mother watching and weeping at the news at the Oklahoma City bombing, the school shootings at Heath High School in Paducah, Kentucky, where we were living at the time when that happened, Columbine. I remember Desert Storm and seeing friends whose fathers had to go serve in the military. September 11th, there's no shortage of ways to see that we are broken and that we are fallen and that humanity is really a mess as we look at it. As we've been reading through the book of Hebrews together and studying it together, we've sought to see one great truth and we will continue to see this one great truth throughout the book of Hebrews and it's that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any alternative you might look to. He's better than any other gospel. He's better than any other savior. He's better than any other God, any other religion that you might seek to follow after. In Hebrews 1, 5 through 2, 4, we saw that Jesus is better. Why? Because he is God. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity and is himself the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, is eternal He flows from God, the Father. We see that Jesus is better. He's a perfect Savior. Not because of any, or or simply because he is God. In our text today, however, we're going to see that Jesus is is a better Savior. He is the true Savior. Not just because, as we saw last time, that Jesus is better than angels, but also because Jesus is a man. Now think about what that means. The same Jesus who sits enthroned above the heavens, who created all things, who by virtue of being God will never die, suffers not, that God bypassed angels completely and became a man. He took on flesh. He was born. He took on our manhood as we read in the Chalcedonian formula earlier. And this is the event, this is the great theological truth that we call the incarnation. It's where, the whole, where Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of Trinity, the eternal Word, took on flesh. He became a person like you and I. Theologian John Owen, in the 17th century, said this, God would have his eternal son to be incarnate, that is literally in the flesh, to take our nature on him to be made a man. What is his design in this incomprehensible work of his wisdom, love, and power? He then goes on for many pages to say that there's two main reasons. One is the redemption of the church that Christ took on flesh to save us. The second thing is that he took on flesh so that he might gather all things under one person for God's glory. 
Jesus took on flesh. He took on our brokenness. He humbled himself to save us and to give God the glory. That's why Hebrews tells us that Jesus is better. And in our text today, we see that he is better because he is the founder of our salvation. He's the cornerstone of it. He's the one through whom it flows. He's the chief architect. He is the capstone of it as well. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Why? Because the same person who created all things, who is God, also took on flesh. He took on our brokenness. He took on our fallenness. He took on all of the pain and the suffering and the misery that we see around us inherent in humanity. But why did the second person of the Trinity need to take on flesh? From our text today, I want us to see three reasons. Three reasons why Christ would take on flesh. And I want us to use language that's in the text itself. Look in verse 10. It says, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It is fitting that the founder of our salvation should take on flesh. Now, this word for fitting means something very particular. My youngest daughter, Lucy, just turned three years old a couple of months ago, and she really loves puzzles. And I'll get home from work, and there will be two or three puzzles laying on the floor that she wants to show me she did that day. And I love whenever I watch her do the puzzles. Because sometimes, you know, she's three, and we'll set out a puzzle, and on the box it says ages six and up or whatever. And so she's doing puzzles, you know, that are pretty complicated for a three-year-old. And sometimes she'll take a piece and she'll just put it somewhere. It's like, well, that, you know, you know, jut doesn't match with the cut. And it's like, that's not even the right piece. She's got a corner piece in the middle. She's getting better. And sometimes she'll find the right piece and she'll put it there, but the jut doesn't match with the cut. And, it, you know, it, it, if you turn it 80 degrees or 90 degrees, it gets a little closer, but not quite. And she'll keep turning the piece until it fits. A lot of times, this is what we do with Jesus, right? This is what we try and do with the founder of our salvation. We try and say, this is how I want him to fit. This is the Jesus I want. But scripture tells us that a savior who takes on our flesh, this is a savior that fits. And what does a savior fit into? He fits into the grand overarching picture and the overarching narrative of scripture. Right? What, what the Old Testament and much of the New Testament does is it puts this framework for us. It's like that puzzle that has all the cuts and the juts and where the jigsaw went around and makes the curves. And what Jesus does is whenever we look at him correctly in the light of Scripture, whenever we look at him correctly, he fits and he finishes the puzzle and he makes it clear and he brings it into focus. Jesus is the piece that fits. But we have to see him correctly. From our text today, I want to see three reasons why Jesus fits, why in his taking on our humanity, while taking on flesh, Jesus fits that bill of the perfect Savior, the founder of our salvation. First is this, it was necessary for Christ to take on flesh, it was fitting for Christ to take on flesh, that he might share in our humanity. Verses 5 through 8 begin to bring this into focus. Right? He says, it's not angels 
It's not these angelic beings. It's not the ones that God created that, that we see praising him around his throne that he subjected the world to come. Now, what does that mean when it talks about subjected to, to the world to come of which we are speaking? He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of God, which in short is the gospel. And he then goes on to quote from Psalm 8, which Terry read for us earlier. What is man that you are mindful of him? That word for man there is the word Adam, where we get the word Adam, the first man. What is man? What are your creatures, people like you and me, humanity? What are we that you are mindful of him? Now, in the text in Psalm 8, it compares man to the stars, to the galaxies spinning ahead above. If you think about it, we're really very small. Why would God create humans, and why would he make them the the crowning of his creation as he does? And we do have to wonder. But as we read the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created man in his image. We also see that God created man and gave him dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all the creatures that walk on the earth. And from Psalm 8 that Terry read for us, all of those things are mentioned. That passage, that, that, that psalm that David wrote, he's reflecting on humans as the, the kings and queens of all creation. Adam and Eve were tasked to have dominion over all the earth. But what do we read in Genesis 3? Do Adam and Eve succeed in their task to be kings and queens over all the earth? No, they fall. All of the brokenness, all of the parts of humanity that we realize has fallen, the sad things that make us cry, all of those were introduced because of sin, because humanity did not perfectly obey God, but instead turned from Him. This psalm reminds us that humans were created to be rulers. Man and men and women, Adam and Eve, the children of Adam and Eve, were created to do what God had said. They were created to rule over all creation, but they fall. Now, what's very interesting, though, is that whenever Paul, remember we're saying that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I think the theology is Pauline. It's probably... A sermon that he preached that was recorded, even in verse 6, it says it has been testified somewhere. He doesn't give us the specific reference. It's almost like he's saying this, not off the cuff, but he doesn't take a lot of time to flip back through and say, well, where was that again? But he knew it was there. He says it was testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? And he quotes this passage from the Psalms. Now, whenever Paul quotes this passage, he wants us to understand that it's not Adam and Eve that he's talking about. It's not the children of Adam and Eve that he's talking about. And we know that because he changes one little word. Changes one little word. Look in verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You can flip back to Psalm 8. And I was listening very carefully whenever Terry read it. While does not appear in that psalm. In the psalm, it says you made him a little lower than the angels. Here it says you made him for a little while. 
Right? This is a time marker. This is a stamp saying that there was a time whenever he was not lower than the angels, then there was a time when he was lower than the angels. So who is this talking about? Well, verse 9 makes that clear to us. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is Jesus who this psalm is talking about. It's Jesus who is going to come and who is going to exercise perfect dominion over creation. It's Jesus who takes on flesh, who's going to come and do what Adam and Eve should have done but did not. Jesus shares in our humanity. Why? Because humans were supposed to be the kings and queens of creation. They were to have dominion over creation. And Jesus became a man so that he might have dominion over all things. As we think about it, it makes sense, right? As Adam and Eve fall, as they turn from God, and God puts upon them the curse that humanity will bear this curse, he then says and gives this promise that through the seed of the woman, through a child of a woman, the crushing of the serpent will come. Jesus had to be a man because the crushing of the serpent was going to come through a man. The reversal of all of the curse, the dominion of a man was going to come through a man. And that man is Jesus. Hebrews 2 tells us very plainly that Jesus became a man. He took on flesh so that he might fulfill all the scripture in Genesis 2 and 3. He would be the one who would exercise dominion. Even though he says very clearly, we don't see it completely yet. That he would be the one who reverses the curse. Jesus took on our flesh because we needed a man who would come and save us. Anselm of Canterbury, some 1600 years ago, 15, 1600 years ago, wrote a book called Why God Became Man. It's one of the most important theological works of of church history. And in that, he says that the debt was so great of our sin that what Adam and Eve brought upon us, that debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus, it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. Adam and Eve failed. In their humanity, they failed. What we needed was we needed someone who could succeed, who could pay that debt, and it was Jesus Christ. It was fitting that Christ might take on our flesh so that he might share in our humanity, so that he might become one of us, so that he might do what we failed to do. Second reason that Christ would take on our flesh, share in our humanity, is so that he might share in our suffering. In these verses, in Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, The word suffering is mentioned at least seven times. We see it uh, in verse 9. For instance, the suffering of death. Taste death for everyone. In verse 10, that the founder of their salvation was made perfect through suffering. Verse 14, that 
through his death, he might destroy death. He delivers all those from fear of death. In verse 16, I'm sorry, in verse 17, says that he is a propitiation for our sins. In verse 18, that he suffered while he was tempted so that he is able to help those who are being tempted. This theme of suffering in this passage is very clear. And that makes sense, right? Because there's a fundamental part of our human nature that is suffering. All people die, right? There are two things that we can't escape, death and taxes. But there's more. There's pain. There's loss. There's heartache. There's broken relationships. There's the, all of the sad things that we see on the news that make us cry. Christ, by taking on flesh, brought all this upon himself. The God who created the universe, who never suffered, who did not need to suffer, he humbled himself, took on flesh, so that he might take on our suffering, our weakness, and our frailty. This reminds us of the passage, just one passage that it reminds us from, from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 4, this is in the middle of one of the servant songs, Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. As Isaiah looked forward and he saw the one who was going to come and bring redemption and bring salvation, He saw one like us who was going to suffer for us. Now, what's very important as we understand as Hebrews 4.15 tells us is that Jesus became like us in every way except our sin. Jesus did not sin. So how can it be that Jesus would suffer, that he would bear the weight and the the punishment of sin, which is death, Hebrews 2.15, makes it very clear that Christ died. He suffered death. So how can it be that the one who has no sin would suffer for sins, that he would be punished for sins? As we look, we see that it comes in verse 17. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, that's made like us, having taken on our flesh, having a body that is subject to decay, death, disease, sorrow, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation, that's a a $2 word. It's a big theological word. What it means is it means to appease the wrath of God. And as Eddie was reading for us and, and, and leading us through our confession of sin earlier, we understand and we know that God is a holy God. He is righteous and can abide no sin. For his wrath for sin to be appeased, there must be the shedding of blood. This is why in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices of lambs and bulls and goats to propitiate the sins of the people. The sins of the people brought upon them death. And so a lamb or a bull or a goat was slain. For Jesus to be a propitiation, that must mean that 
our sins were placed upon him at the cross where he bore them away in his body. That's why it is so important that Christ took on flesh. It's so that he might suffer and die and bear away our sins in his body. Now, Christ did not sin, but he took all of the weight of our sins, which means that he took all of God's wrath for our sins in his body. Imagine that. Imagine all of just your individual sin, even from this past week, and the wrath of God that is necessary for those And imagine the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, in the cross, dying, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took the weight of those sins, and he bore it away through his death on the cross. What a magnificent Savior. This is the founder of our salvation. He died. He died for our sins. He took on flesh so that that flesh might be pierced. He came down from heaven, was born as a child so that he might grow into a man who is beaten and hung on a cross to die. This is our Savior. And all of Scripture makes this perfectly clear that Jesus came for one purpose, to suffer. He came to bear away our burden. Now, it says here in verse 10 that the founder of our salvation, Jesus, is made perfect through suffering. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't live a perfect life beforehand, right? He, he did. It doesn't mean that Jesus was any less God before he died on the cross. He was fully God and fully man, as we just confessed. <clears throat> but I think what this is saying here, and what he's saying here, is that the work of Christ was brought to completion by his suffering. Remember, the people who saw Jesus, the people who called out for his crucifixion, they did not want him to suffer. They wanted him to be victorious. They wanted him to ride into Jerusalem, bring an army, throw out the Romans, and sit as a king. But Christ could only finish his work He could only be a perfect Savior once He died on the cross, once He suffered for us on our behalf. It is fitting that Christ should take on our flesh to suffer and share in our suffering because through His suffering, He completes the work of salvation. Even in Genesis 3, it says that His heel will be bruised as He crushes the head. Christ's work of redemption is made perfect through his suffering. The story of redemption is brought to completion through Christ as he suffers. Now the third reason why it is fitting that Christ should take on flesh, that he should become a man, not just so that he might share in our humanity and so that he might share in our suffering, But we see that because Christ has shared in our humanity, because he has shared in our suffering, we share in his victory. Gregory of Nazianzus, a theologian from the the 5th century, famously said that what Christ has not assumed, he has not redeemed. Meaning that if Christ did not take on flesh, he has not redeemed it. 
If Christ did not become a man, did not die in our place, was not risen from the grave, then humanity is not redeemed. For him to redeem something, he must take that which is broken and fallen and unite it to himself in his person. And that's what he did. Christ took on our flesh, died in our place, so that our broken and fallen humanity is united to Christ. He didn't just take our flesh and redeem us. He took our flesh and brought us along with him. And we share with him. As we sing in that beautiful song, my life is hid with Christ on high. Christ became like us, this text says, Again and again, he partook of the same things, flesh and blood. He was made like his brothers so that we might share in his victory. Now, I I think there are probably eight ways that we see from this text that we share in Christ's victory because of what he has done. First is justification. That's the propitiation that we saw in verse 17. Right? Christ took on our sinfulness and clothes us in his righteousness. We get that benefit because Christ took upon flesh, we share in his life. What a blessed exchange the reformers called it. That Christ took on our sin and we are clothed in his righteousness. The second benefit of sharing in his victory is adoption. See, adoption is sons and daughters. This text is replete with this language. It says that, Behold, I and the children God has given me. I am not ashamed to call them brothers. He became like us and the children of offspring, or the offspring of Abraham, so that we might be made brothers. This is the great truth of adoption. It's that while we were far from God, we were alienated to God, in Christ we are made God's children. That's because Christ has become like us and he takes us up with him to become children of God. Another benefit that we get from sharing in his victory is the benefit of sanctification. Look, in verse 11, he who sanctifies, that's the Holy Spirit, that's God, and those who are sanctified all have one origin. He again there is talking about adoption. Talking about that if we all have one origin, if we are all from the Father because of what Christ has done, then we have sanctification. Believe it, that means as you struggle in your sin, as you struggle against that sin, because Christ shares in our life, because we share in His, we will have final victory over that sin. It might seem imperfect right now, and it is imperfect right now, but God will continue to work in our hearts and in our lives. And finally, well not finally, but in this first set of, of, of benefits that we share, we will share in the glorification that Christ will bring to us. It says in verse 9 that we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He humbled himself to take on flesh. He's humbled himself to death on a cross. But now we see that he is crowned with glory and honor. He is crowned with glory and honor. You might ask, well, how then do we share in that glory and honor? Well, I think that in verse 12, I think that what he's saying here is that this is us sharing in his glory and honor. 
He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of your congregation. I will sing your praise. As Christ sits enthroned on heaven and victorious over all things, he calls us brothers. The same Christ who took on flesh, who humbled himself, took on our brokenness, died because we deserve it, not because he does. He then says, come with me into my glory. You are my brothers. Sit around me as we praise God and glorify him. We will share in that glorification. Now, these four things, propitiation, adoption, sanctification, glorification, these all come also from Romans chapter 8, Paul's great uh, just theological treatise on the heart of the gospel that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, that we are justified, that we will be glorified. Earlier in that chapter, he talks about the Spirit of God coming upon us so that we can call out to God as Father. Church, the benefit that we gain from Christ having taken on our flesh, from us sharing in His life, is the gospel. We have forgiveness of sins. We have have the promise of eternal life. We have the promise of glorification and the promise of sanctification. Christ took on flesh so that we might be united to him in faith and that we might have all the benefits of the gospel. There are four other benefits of of Christ taking on flesh and they are related to the gospel, but really they flow from it. One is we have life. First, we have new life. We have new life, and I think that's specifically spiritual life. Specifically spiritual life, and we can see that from verse 15, that he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, all of us here today are alive, right? Maybe think of the Monty Python sketch. You know, maybe you're old and achy and you're feeling it. I'm not quite dead. I'm not quite dead. So what does it mean to have life? I think he's talking about spiritual life here. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins and that because Christ is raised to life from the grave, we have spiritual life, but it's also clear that we have everlasting life, that we shall not fear the grave and death. It says multiple times that he suffered death for everyone, that by his death he might destroy the power of death. Church, this is great news because it means that we will live forever with Christ in all eternity. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. Whenever we see someone, a believer, who dies, yes, we are saddened. Yes, it is heartbreaking. But ultimately, we know that Christ defeated death because he died and because he died for us as he was raised from the grave, we too will be raised with him. We are no longer subject to the power of death, not because of anything we have done, but because Christ defeated the power of death. We also see that we have the benefit of freedom. It says that he delivers those from lifelong slavery. So we go, we're going through Galatians in our Thursday night Bible study, and we've been talking about how there's freedom in Christ. What does that mean? It means that we're no longer subject to the law. We, we're, we are able to live lives free for God's glory. We need not fear 
the punishment of the law because Christ has taken that punishment away for us in the cross. Believers, we have freedom because of what Christ has done and because he has taken on our flesh. And finally, because Christ took on our flesh, because he suffered for us, we, and we share in his victory, we have help in temptation. Look at verse 18. Because he himself has su- suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I think back to the context of the book of Hebrews. What was a great temptation that these believers were facing? It was a temptation to turn away from Christ. It was a temptation to fall away to the ways of the world, to hear, maybe there's something better for us if we turn from Christ. What was the temptation of Christ? Well, we were reminded of it a few weeks ago whenever Eric preached through the Gospel of Luke. Christ was tempted to forsake the glory of God, to not trust God that God would bring about his purposes, but instead take things into his own hands. And Christ combated that temptation and remained perfect, even though he suffered. So what does that mean for us? I think it certainly means that, you know, maybe we're tempted to engage in that gossip. Maybe there's that temptation to click on that website link and look at those images. Maybe there's the temptation to want to be greedy, to lie, to steal, to cheat. But I think what the author of Hebrews has particularly in mind here is that just as Christ, when he suffered, thought that it might be better to turn from God, and he didn't, we have strength in Christ to know that no matter the suffering, no matter the temptation, no matter the, 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 the hurt, the sickness, the brokenness that is going on in your life, no matter what you might be facing, we can hold firm to the faith because of what Christ has done. Stand firm. Stand firm because Christ has stood firm and we can look to Him. How does Christ help us in this temptation? I think in a few ways. First, I think is that Christ combated temptation by turning to the Scriptures. Colossians 3 says that the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, teaching and admonishing, literally building each other up through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And I think that what we need to understand is that whenever temptation is standing on our shoulder and it's saying, turn from Christ, do, don't, why are you looking to Christ? In, you know, whatever it is, we need to be reminded of the words of Scripture. We need to be reminded that Christ is a perfect Savior who died in our place to save us from our sins. The Word of Christ needs to dwell in us richly, and Christ does that as we seek to do that. I think also it means that we have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we struggle with sin, Christ has poured out His Spirit on us. And we have help and temptation because we have the Holy Spirit. It also means that we have the promise of new life. Theologian Jonathan Edwards, in his great work, The Bondage of the Will, says that because of our humanity, our, our will is curved. We don't want to seek after God. We want to seek after sin. But what God does is when he brings us new life, he straightens that out. Literally, God changes the desires of our hearts. 
when we are tempted to sin, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us and that God does for us in Christ is he takes our hearts and he changes what they want. No longer do we want to seek after the pleasures of the flesh, but instead we, might, we want to seek after the glory of God through obedience to him. It is fitting that Christ, the founder of our salvation, should take on flesh so that he might share in our humanity, so that he might share in our suffering, and so that we might share in his victory through that suffering. I'm really glad that the Wassermans are here today for many reasons, Um, but uh, you might not know this, but Jenny and I have a lot in common. We were born and raised in two very different places, mainly southern Illinois, Kentucky. Jenny, I believe, is from Colorado. There's a lot of things about us that are different, but we share one thing in common, and that's our alma mater, where we went to college. And it's not like University of Illinois that has like 30,000 students. Where we went to college, you know, there was like 2,000 students. It's a pretty small school. And I remember whenever I first met Jenny and we found out that we both went to Union University. We didn't go at the same time, um, but, I mean, it's amazing. We're talking about Union and it's so small and it's so close-knit. Like, we had a lot of the same professors. A lot of the buildings were the same. I mean, there was so much, and I could have just sat there and talked for hours about union. And it was just this incredible feeling to have this connection, to, to share this with Ginny and be able to, you know, even though we don't know each other, even though we're from two different places, even though we have two totally different life experiences, we share this thing. How much greater is it that Christ, who sits enthroned above the heavens, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, took on our flesh. That thrill of excitement that we get whenever we share an experience with someone, it's even greater whenever we understand that we share with Christ. First, that he shared our humanity and shared in our suffering, but also that we share, or that we share in his victory. So we conclude today, I just want to, say four things. One is there is an inherent beauty in humanity. God created humanity, and he created it very good, he tells us. He created that humanity, man and woman, and said it was very good. Two, there's an incredible burden in humanity, an incredible brokenness in humanity. God created us good, he created us male and female, but he created us, but we turned from him in our sin. But that brings us to an imminent savior. It's a savior who is close to us, a savior who took on our flesh. And because that savior took on our flesh, it gives an immeasurable hope for all humanity. So I was thinking this week, you know, June would be a very happy month for me. It's week of month of my birthday, Father's Day. But it's also Pride Month. And as we walk around and go to any store, we're bombarded with rainbows and whatnot. And it would be very easy for, you know, us to maybe be bitter. It would be very easy for us to become angry. But what if we remember these four things? 
What if we remember that the people who are at the top of their lungs screaming, I have pride in sexual deviation. What if we remember that God created them in his image and they are male and female? We don't want to compromise on that truth. That's part of the inherent beauty of creation. But what if we also remembered that they have an incredible brokenness? What if instead of getting angry and getting upset, we had patience and we sought to love them as image bearers of God, realizing that they are sinners and sufferers? And what if we proclaimed to them that there is an imminent Savior, Jesus, who came close, who took on their flesh, who died in their place, and that because he did that, they have immeasurable hope, far greater than any pleasure this world can offer. It doesn't just stop there with, with, with Pride Month. Ask, put in anyone you know. Put in yourself. As you're racked with the guilt of your sin, remember that God created you, and that you have dignity as a human, but understand that your burden, and that brokenness, leads you to the need of a perfect Savior who has come close to us in Christ and that there is hope for you. Church, we, we take this message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. But just as Christ in wisdom, power, and love took on flesh, might we be humble as we take this message that Christ is the perfect Savior to the world. Jesus the founder of our salvation, took on our flesh, suffered in our place, and because of what he has done, when our faith is in him, we are united to him, and we have every benefit of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for the work of systematic theologians for many, many years as they have sought to teach us that Jesus was perfectly God, perfectly man, who have written wonderful things like the Chalcedonian Creed, like Anselm in Why God Became Man, like John Owen in The Glory of Christ, and many, many others. We thank you for these teachers. Dear Father, I pray that as we seek to understand your word from Hebrews, we will see that Christ is a perfect Savior. He's the founder of our salvation because he took on flesh, suffered in our place, and we share in that victory when our faith is in him. Give us this hope as we struggle and suffer and we face and fight temptation each and every day. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.